Welcome to the 39th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Joop Decker from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at University of Massachusetts Medical School. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Joop, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you were born in, born in the Netherlands and studied molecular genetics and biochemistry as an undergraduate at Utrecht University, where you also obtained a PhD in physiological chemistry in 1997. You then went on to do a postdoc in Nancy Kleckner's lab at Harvard University, where you developed the famous chromosome confirmation capture method. And you then moved on to the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and you are there still today. Um, a question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yes, I have been interested in biology from a very young age, actually. And many people who study biology start out being interested in living things. Um, I, was, I actually have been a very active birder. I watch birds since I was like 11. So the natural world has always attracted me. But in high school, I got familiar with an area that um, in biochemistry and molecular biology that I thought was just really intriguing to learn about the molecular underpinnings of life. And that was something I never really had considered. And this was, of course, in the 80s, molecular biology it was really peaking. Um, and and um, that was an area that I was very interested in. And when I started to study biology at the University of Utrecht, um, That was the direction I was really most interested in, molecular biology. Uh, and, but I always refer to myself as a biologist first. So sometimes people ask me, oh, are you like a genome biologist or a biophysicist? No, I'm actually a really a biologist. I am interested in how life works. And I think understanding it from a molecular point of view is, is very interesting. Over the last number of years, inspired by people like Leonid, working with my close friend and collaborator, Leonid Verney, um, I've become really interested in the biophysical aspect of life. And, and, and we focus, of course, on chromosomes, which I think is the most important molecule in the cell. Uh, they are fascinating molecules and um, the one of the most beautiful structures in the cell. Uh, and I think really the defining feature of life. So, so again, I really have been driven by understanding um, just biology and how life can exist and boiled it down over the years to studying the, at the heart of life, the genomes. And um, it's, been a, it's been a great journey, but uh, these days, it's, it, even though I refer to myself as a biologist, understanding chromosomes involves lots of different fields. Uh, and it's particularly that interdisciplinary nature of the, the work that, that is currently most appealing to me. So when physicists uh, mock biologists, they say like it's all chemistry and in the end it's all physics. So would you agree in part to that? <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. It's all physics, all chemistry. I always enjoy it when people say, oh my God, chromosome folding obeys the laws of physics. Well, yes, uh, it, how could it otherwise? Um, but, um, but I do think it's an important uh, thing be because it, it indicates that... Um, If I introduce new students in my lab or new trainees in my lab to what we are doing, um, it's always a little bit different from what some people are used to, I think, because we're not particularly studying a, a disease or, or a, what we are studying is really the, the really basic mechanisms by which chromosomes work. Um, I tend to think it's important for understanding any genetic disease. 
Um, but it, it is really driven from a curiosity about how this can work. And in order to answer that question, it's not sufficient to say, I'm just going to do molecular biology or biochemistry, or I'm, I'm a geneticist, so I'm going to just do the genetics. No, you really have to, to bring to bear all these different uh, approaches to that problem. And that's why I think uh, over the years, we have been very collaborative. If you look at some of the work we have done in my group, it's always, in many cases, the best work we've done is in collaboration with others, because I like to bring together people from very different disciplines uh, and focus on this problem, which I think is just interesting from a scientific point of view, but also I think very productive. So uh, just the one question that, that comes to my mind now, that because you're mentioning that you are not focusing on any disease or anything like that, but um, have you found that it's uh, harder to get funding for those kind of things? Or because nowadays everybody is talking about this has, has to have like physical, re physiological relevance. It has to involve a disease or anything. Is it harder to get funding for this kind of work? Well, I, I've been kind of fortunate in the fact that this field has been very, um, very well supported by NIH. Uh, here in the United States. Um, and I know in Europe, there are several efforts studying the 3D genome led by some really prominent scientists in Europe. So I think the funding agencies have appreciated uh, that this is an area of study that is relevant. We do make the case, of course, that if we learn more about chromosome structure and chromosome folding and how that regulates genes, that that would be very important for understanding disease. And there are good examples of this. And we, in collaboration with others, For instance, we had a, a paper a number of years ago with Rick Young at MIT to show that if you disrupt TADs or the boundaries between them, that can lead to enhancer hijacking and oncogene activation. Um, so so I, uh, this is very relevant for human disease, I believe. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm convinced this is uh, highly relevant for disease. Uh, what I'm saying is that a lot of the work I personally do is not driven by motivation to cure a disease. It's, it's driven by curiosity. Knowing full well that, and, and, and one of the reasons I like to talk to you and, and talk to other people is that knowing about what's happening in the chromosome folding field, I think is going to be very important for people who do study diseases, try to understand the molecular basis. So often, of course, when we write uh, proposals for, for um, research projects, we do highlight, of course, that this has very important ramifications. But in a way, in the United States, there has been a lot of funding for the Human Genome Project, for instance, which started early in the 90s. Um, and that has continued to this day through the genome sequencing project, the human genome uh, itself and other genomes, um, the ENCODE project to, end, to really annotate genomes, and now the 40 nucleome project to study the spatial organization of chromosomes. So it, it really, the work we do fit in a long tradition in this country for funding this type of research. But of course, it is, we, we do make the case that the work is very well. It's highly relevant. So uh, coming to your science, um, I want to start, obviously, I, I want to say in 2002. So in this year, the paper from your postdoc years was published in Science, uh, essentially describing the chromosome confirmation capture method. Um, can you take us back to these times? Um, what was chromatin research like at the turn of the century? And what was the big inspiration that you to the development of this method? Yeah, it's um, it, it looks as if not that long ago, but the chromosome field, chromatin structure field has changed a lot over the last two decades. So when I, um, when I was a graduate student, I, I studied um, proteins that bind DNA and tried to understand how they bind DNA and really uh, from a quite biophysical point of view already, but it was a very biochemical project. I was interested in proteins that would unwind DNA, single-stranded DNA binding proteins. 
it was very detailed. And I got more interested in understanding higher order uh, chromosome structures. Uh, and and, and uh, we were actually at the time already kind of joking in the lab, like wouldn't it be cool to solve the structure of a whole chromosome instead of just of a protein bound to DNA? Um, that was joking at the time. But, but then I heard uh, at, a uh, at a conference, I think it was a Keystone conference in um, 96 or 95, I can't quite remember. I was in the middle of my graduate studies and I heard a, a Nancy Kleckner present uh, a seminar that really inspired me. And in that seminar, she presented very mechanical models for chromosomes, uh, really unusual. I'd never heard something like it. Uh, it was treating chromosomes like a real mechanical object. And there was patterning along chromosomes that could drive like DNA recombination during meiosis. These are models that people are still playing with today. Um, and they're still heavily debated about how this might work. But just the idea to approach a chromosome from a more mechanical uh, material science almost uh, point of view. And just her creativity really drove me uh, to uh, apply to her lab to start to study chromosome structure. And when I uh, communicated with her before I joined her lab, I was just, she and I on the phone, we spent hours on the phone at the time, there was no Zoom. Uh, we were talking about uh, developing new ways to study chromosome structure. Uh, and I came from, a, again, from a very biophysical, biochemical angle, whereas classically at the time, chromosomes were studied by microscopy. And um, having worked in a lab as a graduate student where we were trying to solve structures by X-ray crystallography or NMR, um, I, I came from that kind of tradition to look at the, what I now call the chromosome folding problem. If you look at an NMR spectrum, you can solve the structure of a protein if you know which atoms along the, the amino acid chain are physically contacted. So at the time I thought, hmm, I was interested in specifically how different chromosomes would interact with each other. I thought if I can just only map all the contacts between the chromosomes. And again, I did not know nothing about microscopies. I came from a biochemical tradition and I was trying to think, is there a way that I can just map those contact points and if I can map these contact points, I can learn how different chromosomes, for instance, during meiosis can recognize each other. I wasn't really thinking about folding per se yet. I was just looking at contacts between the chromosomes. That led me to develop methods for, uh, biochemical methods for identifying points of contact by cross-linking. So that, that worked pretty quickly. I could cross-link chromatin. That's not hard to do. But the challenge was, how can I identify which sequences I cross-link together? And I played with all kinds of essays uh, until I finally, actually it was in the shower in the morning, I had an idea that if I can only use PCR to detect the two DNA sequences, because I thought it's probably very infrequent uh, of such a contact. And then uh, how can I PCR two fragments if I have to ligate them together? Uh, and, that, and that led to an, um, the original uh, experiment I did in, I remember, November 1998, so I started in Nancy's lab in January 1st, 1998, and I said, I'm going to give myself one year to make this assay work. So in November, 11 months in, I got one PCR band on the gel. And I, I, I remember the date well. It was a great thing. Now, it turns out that some of these ideas like uh, uh, looping, look, looking at looping by re-ligating ends is, is not new. People have done that before. Um, I came to that point from a very different direction. Um, but such essays have been developed either for looking at bending of DNA or looping of DNA or even inside nuclei. This has been done before. But the idea that if 
I think the main idea I had was if I just can measure lots of these contacts, I should be able to infer the structure of a chromosome. I then put that project away for a while because I, I was working also on cohesins, which at the time had just been discovered by both Doc Carson and Kim Naisman's labs. Um, and that was very competitive. There were lots of other people jumping on cohesins. And now 20 years later, cohesin and condensin are still the main machines that people study for chromosome folding. Uh, so I spent some time working on that, got scooped on it, of course. Uh, dropped that, got back to 3C. Uh, I went back and forth a few times. But um, yeah, so that paper appeared for, uh, finally in 2002, took five years. Um, and um, yeah, it was very interesting. And I always say that uh, working in Nancy's lab was really the enabling thing because it was, she allowed me to pursue this relatively obscure idea um, for, for a number of years, um, which was remarkable. I mean, you you had your first uh, success like just before the deadline, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it was very close. Uh, but yeah, so so and and then when that paper got published, yeah, it, it really got adapted by the community very very quickly. Um, yeah, in the in the following years, the the method was also incrementally improved on, and uh, your team then improved it and developed the five C method in two thousand six, and also in two thousand nine, then Eris Lieberman Aiden uh, developed high C in your lab. Um, I already spoke to Eris earlier this year, and you can um, listen to all the details of high C in this episode. But um, what is your view on the how how the three C like techniques um, were improved and finally got to the stage to high C and now even micro C? Yeah, I think micro-C is probably the, um, an example of pushing it to the limit. And again, this is really led by Oli Rando, my colleague here at UMass, who, uh, uh, when he joined uh, UMass a number of years ago, he joined it a little bit after I did, and we started talking from early day, days on already. He was interested in nucleosome resolution chromatin structure um, using MNAs and other assays. And, oh, if only we could combine that with, at the time, it was IC was still on the development. Um, but his lab finally did uh, include MNAs, the fragmentation of chromatin, combining it with high C to form this micro C assay. And with his lab, we just published some really, really detailed contact maps uh, this year. Um, and they are probably the highest resolution 3D folding maps of the human genome currently available. Uh, it is amazing, actually. Micro C is amazing. Uh, the the crispness of the contacts that emerge. High C still suffers a little bit from a little bit fuzzy contacts, uh, and that has to do with the, the fact that restriction enzymes cut chromatin in in small but not very small pieces. They can still be a kilobase, whereas contacts between specific sites happen at the resolution of probably subnucleosomal resolution. So micro C really, I think, is a game changer. It really um, allows you to see very precise looping contacts, way more looping contacts than by high C. I mean, tens of thousands of more loops emerge in the same cell type if you analyze it by micro C than by high C. Uh, one major limitation for many of these assays is still cost. In order to see such data sets, uh, such precise looping interactions, you have to sequence these data sets very, very deeply. And, um, and I must say, with micro-C, you can start seeing loops at a, um, even if you have just a few hundred million reads. Uh, High-C can still, you probably still need a little bit more. Um, so I think micro-C has certain advantages. 
What we recently discovered is that micro-C has also some disadvantages. Other features of chromosome folding, like compartments, this spatial segregation of active and inactive chromatin, uh, is not very, um, you can see it in micro-C data, but it's not, as, it's not quantitatively as strong as you can see in HIAC. So, so we actually have recently developed, uh, optimized a new HIAC method that kind of looks in between micro-C and HIAC, we're about to uh, share that with the world, but gives you the benefits of both HIAC in terms of compartment detection and micro-C in terms of loop detection. Uh, we, we refer to that currently uh, as HIAC 3.0, it's like the third generation of HIAC. But, so there's lots of improvements still in those areas, um, but we are starting to, I think the field is kind of converging now on, on using some of these micro-C-based assays. Now, I wanna say one thing, uh, go back to my point that I'm really a biologist. I'm interested in life. I have become really interested in a variety of other life forms, not mammals. Some of them have no nucleosomes. And if you have no nucleosomes, micro-C is not the assay you want to use uh, because it will just chop off the whole genome. So, uh, And that's the same is true, of course, for bacteria where, where micro-C wouldn't really be applicable. Um, so so there are, there's, there's room for lots of different assays. But the field has gone way beyond high C. You know? I mean, there are lots of single cell assays, and, uh, which I think are really fascinating. Yeah. So did you envision um, when you started out with 3C that um, this method would be improved in such a way as it is now and that it would like be the defining method for the 3D organization of the nucleosome, uh, nucleus field? Maybe. No, I would, of course, never. <laughs> Maybe on a good day, I would have like dreamed about that. Um, I do remember when, when the paper got just accepted, Nancy said to me, as my Nancy Kleckner said to me, she said, oh, I think this is going to be a big hit. I thought, okay. I mean, it was my, really my first paper in a big journal. And I thought, okay, I'm just very happy to have this paper. And she said, no, no, I think it's going to be a really big hit. And she was right. As she's often been right on many things. Um, but I couldn't quite imagine that this could go this far. Because remember, when this paper was published in 2002, there was no deep sequencing. Yeah, that's that was uh, probably the the drawback here, no? right? Yeah, and I think the deep sequencing uh, revolution uh, really allowed this assay to blossom. And I remember even in when I presented the five C method uh, in Cold Spring Harbor, um, in that original paper that we I think we published in two thousand six. It's a targeted approach to make contact maps for targeted regions, and there's still a big market for that, a big need for that if you want to study the same locus under many different conditions that is, and capture high C. Those methods are still, I think, the methods of choice. But I presented that, and I, at the time, people were doing microarray detection of chip, chip, chip or RNA analysis, but also 4C and 5C. And I showed data to show that if you actually analyze the same libraries, not by a microarray, but by deep sequencing, at the time, this was 454 sequencing. We were very happy to get 30,000 reads. Um, I told the audience, I said, look, I think deep sequencing is the way to go. The data look much better. It's the same library, much better signal to noise, much more precise, much more quantitative. And people were very concerned because they said it's inaccessible. There is no deep sequencing. You can't sequence very deep. Um, and that, that was certainly true at the time. But I think, again, uh, the deep sequencing revolution changed everything. Yeah. So, so I have... I have become to believe that if you imagine you want to do something, you should try to do it, even though it might think, look impossible now. 
it might be possible a few years later. That's very uh, true, yeah. It's absolutely true. And uh, the deep sequencing, I mean, there are other challenges now in the field. It used to be just getting the data. Getting a genome-wide contact map was at first impossible, then a dream, then a reality. But now is okay, now I have that very large data set. That would be a data set. If I can interrupt you here, because that would be my next question. You and your team not only developed the wet lab tools, but also like the informatical tools to analyze those data, because you have these large uh, data sets and I see the high C contact maps in the background here. Um, what do yeah, you do? That, that actually is my, my favorite two states of the genome. The top is the interface conformation, and the bottom is uh, the mitotic state where we discovered the helical loop array. And in between, you have Leonid and I breaking. Uh, <laughs> Breaking our heads about how this all works. Uh, this was actually a gift from you. Yeah. Um, but yes, the computational methods are very important because it doesn't really make sense to make data if you can't analyze it. The first thing that we spent some time on, then gave up because other people are much better at it, is working on ways to visualize the data. I always say to people, you need to look at the data. Don't just make a data that's a file. You need to look at it. Just, just get an intuition for looking at the data, recognizing certain patterns. Um, so originally, uh, Brian LaJoy was really a key person in my lab who built a lot of these uh, original first generation analytical tools. He now is a senior scientist at Illumina. Um, just drawing heat maps, just draw, draw the data so you can take a look at it. But then these maps became very quickly way too large and we couldn't visualize, or we couldn't, you need real software developers and data visualization experts to develop tools to do that. Now, ERAS, of course, has developed juice box and other ways of visualizing, analyzing data, and these are widely used. Uh, we have worked with Niels Galenborg here at Harvard. Um, and he also works with Leonid and is part of the Foginucleome Consortium, where he developed high glass, uh, these like Google Maps for high C maps, where you can easily zoom in and out and, and, and pan through the, 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 the data sets. And that has been really tremendous. We have adopted that visualization uh, tool uh, completely in our lab and work very closely with them to further develop it. I care very much about data visualization uh, so that uh, for two reasons. One, internally in the lab, people need to get an intuition for the data by just looking at it. I mean, I spend maybe too much time just browsing through the data. I spend a lot of time doing that. Also, I think it's very important to have such tools so you can share data with the community. These days when people, including our lab, make these large contact maps, um, of course they will end up in a paper somewhere, but I think they can go much farther if you share that data and the way to look at it just broadly and freely with the scientific community. So that's why I care very much about these data visualization tools. And then analyzing the data, there's a whole field now of people developing really great tools to analyze that data. That's not really the expertise currently of my lab. Initially, we did develop a lot of these first-generation tools. But again, as I said, there are people who are so much better at that than we are. Uh, and we work with many of them. We share all our data uh, so that the, these tools can be further optimized and developed. It's a major challenge. The data sets become so large that this is not, it's going to require new ways of thinking about the data. Even when you can zoom in and out, I mean, um, new horizons might uh, get uncovered if you, I mean, you can't see it from the bird's eye perspective, but if you zoom in, then you will see a whole another level of, of interactions, maybe. So, yeah. 
You also work together with Edith Hurd, um, who also was a guest on this podcast already, <laughs> on the structure of the mouse X chromosome. Um, so you apply this then to, yeah, biology. <laughs> so how did you approach this and what did you find there? Yeah, so actually this started out with Edith approaching me uh, after I gave her a seminar. Um, this was in the 5C time and she approached me and said, I would be really interested to look at, not at the time, not even just the X chromosome, but the X chromosome inactivation center. She had, of course, pioneered early studies to show that there, the, the exist locus, which silences when, when it's expressed, the exist RNA silences one X chromosome in females. Um, a lot of people think it's just the exist locus, but she knew that the, the, the element that actually controls where and when and how exist is expressed from only one chromosome is actually larger than that just the exist gene. It's a, like a five megabase region. Um, and she was interested to see whether there's anything specific about the folding of that region that could explain the very complex regulation of the existing. So at the time, Alvesh Nora, who is now an assistant professor in California, uh, UCSF, um, he joined my lab for a while when he was a graduate student in Edith's lab. He, he spent some time here in my lab doing these 5C experiments. And of course, he is an extremely talented scientist. Um, he got it to work in a, in, a, in a time when 5C was still quite experimental, I must say. Um, and with him, uh, he went back to Edith's lab and did a lot more imaging and, and uh, functional studies of that locus. And that led to a paper in 2012 uh, where Avash uh, and Edith and my lab together published this paper where we found that the exist locus, the larger X chromosome inactivation centers composed of a series of smaller domains that we at the time called topologically associated domains. And, and since then, uh, we have had on and off collaborations with EDIS lab for, for a number of years, expanded those early studies to look at the structure of the entire active and inactive X chromosome using allele-specific HI-C. Uh, and they currently still have ongoing collaborations with both uh, Elfash and with uh, Edith uh, to look at very specific phenomena related to, in this case, we're very interested in the specific structure that emerges around genes that escape inactivation. So most, the inactive X is not completely inactive. There are little pockets of genes that are actually expressed. And why is that? Why are those genes able to escape this chromosome-wide silencing process? And we thought it has to do with maybe formation of local structures, CTCF-mediated possibly, and TAD-like structures at these escaping genes. So that is still something that we're very, very interested in pursuing. Uh, and again, this is really Edith's projects. And we, we play a co-pilot on that project. It's a really great system. And again, this goes back to our earlier points that I'm interested in the basic mechanisms of chromosome folding, but it's very productive and very interesting to apply some of our approaches to very specific questions. Like X chromosome inactivation might seem like, oh, this might be a particular, a curious process may not be general, but I've, in fact, when you study these kind of somewhat outlier processes, you often learn a lot about processes like chromosome folding that probably applies to all chromosomes. Um, and that's, that's the idea. But yeah, that, that was a very important time because I think the discovery of these smaller domain-like structures have led to discovery of, uh, uh, of domain formation by loop extrusion, um, the role of CTCF in blocking some of these phenomena that can lead to these emerging domains in population-based IC data. Um, so it, again, that, that very 
focus study on X chromosome inactivation led to the discovery of these properties that are very, very general mechanisms of chromosome folding that act throughout the genomes and probably across the tree of life. Oh, okay. And more recently, you also got interested in mitosis, so in my mitotic chromosome formation. Um, a couple of papers came out, and even this year, a paper published in Nature Methods with a method called Sister C. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what drove you into the direction of mitosis? Yeah, it's actually, actually the, my, 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 my ambition to solve the structure of a mitotic chromosome um, has been in the back of my head for a very long time. Uh, in fact, already when I was a postdoc, then in Nancy's lab, the focus was very much on meiotic chromosomes, um, uh, but also these days she studies mitotic chromosomes. But yeah, the, the mitotic chromosome is such an iconic structure. Because you can see it. <laughs> you can, yeah, exactly. You can, if, you, if you ask somebody, what does a chromosome look like? Most people will draw the classical X-shaped mitotic chromosome, which of course, most of the time chromosomes do not look like that. Uh, but it's a beautiful structure, and I, I had always a desire to solve that structure. We had an early paper on that in 2013 um, with Leonid, like many of my papers are with Leonid Murney's lab, um, where we propose a model that mitotic, loop, mitotic chromosomes are, uh, are linear arrays of consecutive chromosomes, highly compressed. Um, and, and we have followed up on that over the years. As you said, we published a paper with um, uh, Bill Earnshaw maybe two years ago, uh, uh, refining that model of mitotic chromosome folding um, and specifically testing the, the role of SMC uh, condensing complexes in the formation of that chromosome. Again, this is an area that we're going to focus a lot on to go beyond making these contact maps and understanding the mechanisms of folding. Um, but then there was one, one really big challenge. If you think about um, uh, prophase, which is, I think, so, so the structure that we described in 2013 and 18 is mostly focused on late mitosis, when the chromosome fully condensed and formed this classical, very rod-shaped, X-shaped uh, uh, chromosome. But this is not one chromosome. These are two chromosomes, two chromatids, two sister chromatids. They are tightly aligned. We kind of ignored that for convenience sake, in 2013 and 18 papers. We don't really touch on it. We think by the time we look at the structure of these chromosomes, we have two chromosomes, two sister chromatids, but they are separate from each other. They run side by side, but we can treat them as two independent units. How did they get there? Because after DNA replication, the two sister chromatids are completely one around each other. So, What I like to say is prophase is now my favorite time of the cell cycle. Uh, when the sisters start out initially being quite mingled and they become separate while they become also compact. That's a massive topological problem for the cell to solve. How do cells do that? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I look at the cable of my uh, headphones, I mean, they're always like intertwined and then form knots always. and everything, always. So. No, it's not. So, uh, so the, the challenge, so I got really interested in that process. If I want to understand how you go from an interface conformation of a chromosome to these beautiful mitotic chromosomes, I have to understand how these two sister chromatids that start out being totally tangled, how do they become separated and how do they become compacted? Um, that is a challenge to analyze. And again, this is another example where this has been studied mostly by microscopy. 
because by microscopy, you can just see the two chromosomes. You can even label them differently. But by HiC, not so easy because these two chromosomes, the two sister chromatids, by definition, they're replication products. They have the identical sequence. There have been methods to look at like the different conformations of two homologs. We have two chromosomes of each, the mom and dad. They can be different from each other genetically. They can be variants that your mother has that are different than your father. So now you have two chromosomes, you can sequence them. And by high C, you can tell them apart because they have different sequences. But sister chromatids have, by definition, identical sequence. So how, if you do high C on a pair of sisters and you see locus one interacting with locus two, how do I know is locus one and two on the same sister chromatid or two different chromatids? So that's kind of like a puzzle. And it took us a number of years to come up with a variety of ideas to label the two sister chromatids separately so that after sequencing, you can tell them apart. Uh, and this is the sister C method that you just referred to. We published it earlier this year. And again, we, we published this. And then at the same time, Daniel Gerlich's lab in Vienna uh, published an alternative sister C. They call it uh, sister chromatid sensitive, I believe, high C. Uh, another method that, 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 that does addresses the same problem but in a different way uh, solves that problem too. So there are really two methods now. Um, and what we can now do with that method is by, by labeling the newly replicated strand, the BRDU, uh, which is, of course, the top strand from one sister, but the bottom strand on the other sister. Uh, so they have been now labeled in different places. Um, and yet, then you do high C um, and, and you remove DNA strands containing BRDU with UV. This is a known trick that people have done for other assays. Um, you can actually interpret the high C contact map in, in two ways. You can find interactions that are happening within one sister chromatid or between two sister chromatids. And now you can start to see how their contacts between the sisters evolve. If, if you start in G2 and you go into prophase, prometaphase, uh, while uh, in the same data set, you can look to see what happens uh, with compaction within one chromosome because we see the sister intra-sister chromatid interactions as well. So we hope to apply this, of course, to, uh, to highly synchronized uh, cultures to, to study the, this major topological problem of the cell, disentangling and compacting sister chromatids uh, at the same time during prophase. That's my next uh, challenge. Uh, and, uh, but I think we have a shot at it. We have a, an assay that, that we can use, and uh, we have cell lines for which we can do such synchronized mitosis. So um, it's going to be an exciting uh, line of research. Fingers crossed. Um, now I want to switch uh, gears a little bit and move away a little bit from the pure science and talk about the 4D Nucleon project, mm -hmm. uh, which was founded in two 2017. And what was the process that led to the founding of this project? And what is your role in the project? Yeah, so this is funded by, uh, by a mechanism that, that the NIH has, which is called the Common Fund. It is, so most research funded by NIH is funded through specific institutes. The Human Genome Institute, the Institute for Diabetes, and things like that, Age Institute, Aging Institute. They fund their, in their own project areas, they fund research. But then overarching across all these institutes, they have this common fund, which is a, a, a dedicated pot of money that NIH has reserved for funding projects, large projects, typically, large consortium-style projects, in areas where they feel uh, such a large investment would make a, ma a major impact in the scientific community for that area. 
Often this involves technology development to give a certain area a big boost. And they have done this for areas like microbiome, uh, but now also in the CRISPR area, they're doing various projects. Now, how to identify an area that would deserve such a big boost of funding? And again, this is an area, I think, a way of funding that I really appreciate in the United States is it really grassroots. They ask the scientists, the community, this is not done by politicians or administrators. Uh, they put out feelers and they ask for proposals. They ask scientists, what do you think? What area deserves um, close attention or which area would really benefit from a coordinated uh, effort? And um, I don't know who proposed this. Several people may have proposed it. I did. I was not the person who proposed it, but um, they, uh, the, the, the study of the folding of the human genome uh, percolated up as an area that was important. Uh, what NIH then does is they, they assemble a number of uh, uh, sessions when they ask experts in the field to give their opinion. Um, and I was involved in some, at, at that stage of the process, I became involved in, in uh, advising what kind of uh, uh, mechanism or what kind of, what are the big questions, who should be, uh, how should the RNA be written and so on. But then the NIH writes a request for applications. Uh, I was not involved in any of that, um, but um, I saw it came out and we applied. Uh, so it made the cut. It became one of these projects that they reserve funding for. And typically, these are five-year projects, and they fund at a significant level, meaning they, they fund a lot of people. That first effort funded like 40 grants. So that's a lot of grants. And six of these were centers, a large center that would be more than just one lab, right? It would be more like a, a coordinated uh, group of people bringing together a variety of technologies and approaches to study the genome. So Leonid and I put together one of these center applications. Uh, actually, it started in 2015. Um, and uh, we got funded, and uh, just like many other people, and we were involved in that five-year project. Uh, that has ended this summer. Um, but then midterm, these kinds of products get evaluated. Like, is it actually effective? Does it produce data that's useful for the community? And again, a big part of these, these uh, consortium-style project is that everything you do is public. So when you sign up for a project like that, you agree that everything you do is public. All your data is public. All your methods are public. All your papers are. Address preprint. We had this preprint policy that I really, really appreciate. I was one of the first NIH consortia to, to take on this uh, policy that you should put your work uh, out there as a preprint just to make it available to the community as quickly as possible. Again, you get funded a quite large amount of money, but it's a public effort. It's really like the Human Genome Project. This is public. So um, that worked very well. And, and uh, NIH evaluated that first phase and has decided to fund the second phase. That will also be the last phase. These kinds of projects can only be two phases. Um, and again, Leonid and I applied for a, for a center grant and we, um, we were lucky to get funded. Um, so, so that that second phase is only just starting this fall. Okay. But I think it's been a very effective um, consortium because it, one, it, it has mainly focused on technology development. But again, this whole field has been driven by technology, as we spoke about uh, earlier. Um, and this consortium has been successful, I think, in producing even more technologies, not just in the genomic area. I think the biggest innovation in chromosome folding currently is coming from microscopy. 
so there's a tremendous amount of development in the, uh, in the area of new methods for imaging live cells, super resolution, uh, dynamics of loci, go beyond just contact maps and stable maps, go through dynamics, which requires imaging in many cases. Um, so it's been very successful. And, and, and um, the first phase was very much developed, uh, focused on development of technologies and benchmarking these technologies. Uh, and the second phase is going to be more um, uh, maybe relevant for most people um, in the sense that now the consortium is going to apply a lot of these benchmark methods to real problems in biology, like human health, disease models. Uh, several groups are looking at early differentiation. We're going to look at early differentiation and aging. We're going to look to see how the, 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 the folding of the genome evolves over lifespan from very early stem cells, when I think the, the folded genome is a very immature state, then it becomes much more mature uh, in differentiated cells, like compartmentalization becomes very strong. But then as cells age and ultimately die, that deteriorates again. The folinucleon erodes and the cells can't maintain it in this beautiful mature state for some reason, we don't know why, and it just deteriorates in aging cells. So we're gonna follow that whole arc of development of the folded genome over life. But other people will apply it to specific problems, like uh, I believe there are some groups looking at very specific cancer models or uh, organs, like the heart. So, so there, there's, it's gonna be more uh, applied. Uh, but I think the impact of these consortia go beyond the data. Uh, the data are very important, but also the fact that it has produced a set of benchmarked, agreed upon experimental protocols and ways to analyze the data that I think will help the community uh, be consistent about how these experiments are done and analyzed. Uh, this has been very important uh, contribution of the ENCODE project also for like chip and RNA-seq data. How do you do these experiments? What benchmarks do you use to show the data is reproducible? Very important. Uh, and how do you assess the quality of your data? So these consortia, some people look at it a little bit weary, like that's a lot of money that goes to these people. Um, but I hope that people will also see that uh, it, it, it has certain benefits to do it this way, and it will produce uh, certain quality standards that the community will benefit from. But it does require that you make everything publicly available. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's ultimately the goal, right? If it's public money, it should be available to the public. Totally agree. Yeah. And as soon as possible. Yeah. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one would be, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you like reached a dead end and did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions that you wanted to answer? No, I haven't reached a dead end, although I am perpetually in a state that I don't know how to answer a question. <laughs> I, 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 I'm always a little bit doubtful about things, but um, I, I'm more of sometimes... Um, a little bit frozen by the fact that there are so many things that one can now do. So what am I going to do? Is this the right thing to do? Uh, it's also a very competitive field. So uh, I always want to make sure that my students and postdocs are not doing projects that are um, too competitive, meaning we're going to be... I always think other people can, can, can act very quickly on projects. I'm a little bit slow sometimes. Um, so that's why I tend to do things that are a little bit out of the mainstream. For instance, we recently, um, not recently, that's the wrong word. <laughs> Seven years ago, we started working on this assay that we now call liquid chromatin high C, uh, which took 
uh, seven years to get published. It's now finally accepted for publication. Um, during that was a very exciting project because I think it addresses a big question related to dynamics of chromosome folding. But during that project, it was so difficult that there had been times that I thought we're doing this, I'm doing this entirely wrong. I should not have done this. This is not the right thing to do now. But um, I've also learned that that sometimes projects just take a long time. And there was enough progress every day that we kept going. But yeah, several projects have reached the point that I thought, oh my, I, I don't, maybe we're not going to finish this. Um, but I think that is normal because I've, um, it's the hard part of science. I always say to people in my lab, uh, we're doing these things because they're hard. You know, I mean, the easy things have already been done. And because trying to do things that are very hard, it also means we're going to fail a lot. <laughs> so, so um, I, I, yes, I have, I have moments, of course, for every project that I think, oh my God, this is, we're not going to get out of this. This might be a total waste of time. Um, but I think I have been quite lucky that in most cases we were able to, to get through those kinds of uh, phases of, of um, despair, so to speak. In the last now 45 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or maybe something that we might have missed uh, still during this interview? Well, I think um, my, my biggest uh, findings probably are from the fact that uh, you can actually study chromosomes and their structure um, in great detail beyond a descriptive view of it. And, and that chromosomes have a structure. Uh, even though they are very different between individual cells. Um, and um, also, I think one really big message that I give to a lot of students when they join a lab is that sometimes scientists look a little bit down on developing a technology, like a wider technology. The funding agencies often do that too. They want you to have the technology, but not to develop it. Uh, but technology development can have a huge impact Uh, on science, uh, because a lot of the things we discover can only be discovered with new assets. Um, but I think um, um, the biggest uh, achievement, I think, in my group has been the, the ability to go from an idea of, wouldn't it be great if we can map the structure of a chromosome, to then do it. Um, and patience is an important thing, because as we said, we, I started this late 90s, and now we're two decades later. Um, so, but there have been little steps of progress along the way that kept us all going. But uh, I think having a good idea goes a long way. Uh, and, and just keep at it. Um, uh, another thing is that, uh, that I want to highlight is that um, the field going forward is, I think, going to focus a lot on beyond just making, looking at the structure of chromosome, looking at the mechanism of chromosome folding, identifying and looking at the machines that fold chromosomes. Uh, of course, we touched briefly on condensin and cohesin. Those are complexes that were studied for two decades as well. And now they become, we know a lot about the molecular mechanism by which they might act to fold chromosomes. Um, and that I think is very uh, rewarding to see that convergence of, on the one hand, being able to see the structure of the chromosome, and on the other hand, knowing the machines that can manipulate the folding of chromosomes. Um, an area that I see a lot of uh, future in that we haven't touched on looking forward is looking beyond maybe the classical human and mouse genomes. If you look at chromosomes, um, again, I'm a biologist. So going back as a biologist and I look at this and think, okay, I'm really interested in different life forms that have chromosomes that can look very strange. 
Um, and um, one organism that we have been really fascinated by in the last couple of years is dinoflagellants, who have chromosomes that look totally different from other eukaryotes. These are eukaryotes without histones. Uh, and they have very strange chromosomes. And we started to study them uh, almost a decade ago. Uh, and we have a first paper on it after 10 years, uh, almost. Uh, uh, well, we have submitted our first paper. And uh, it's about the chromosome folding in these organisms. And I think this is an area that I see more and more now that I talk to people from different fields in ecology or uh, uh, studying uh, marine biology or different life forms in different eco ecosystems. Uh, HiC has allowed genome assembly, assembly methods uh, for assembling uh, genomes of, of a wide, wide variety of genomes and start to look at folding of chromosomes in different types of organisms. And the idea is that we can learn a lot just like we learned a lot about basic mechanisms of folding all chromosomes by looking at the X chromosome, which might look like an outlier. Uh, I think we can learn a lot about the basic mechanisms of chromosome folding by looking at some of these outlier organisms, strange organisms uh, like dinoflagellates. And uh, an example I always give is um, ciliates, like tetrahymena, not your traditional model organism, but that's the organism where David Ellis discovered histoacetyltransferases. And that started the whole epigenetics field. So sometimes looking at these uh, other organisms can be very interesting. Um, and certainly this has been a very fascinating topic for me. So I think expanding beyond traditional model systems could be very helpful uh, just to understand the basic biology of chromosomes. So thank you for your time and for being on this show. It was very interesting. Thank you so much. This was the 39th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. Today, I want to give a shout out to Twitter user at Flying Morning Dew for mentioning us and an episode on Twitter. He referred to the episode with Asifa Akta. Asifa is now director at the Max Planck Institute in Munich, so this episode might also be interesting for you. You can find the link in the show notes. If you have any further questions, you can reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. And you can find the links to the episode of our podcast that we have mentioned during this episode with Edith Hurd, Leonid Mirnipping-Ren and Eris Lieberman-Aiden in the show notes. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.